Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening, and joining me in the studio are my good buddies, Lenny Esposito and Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing, gentlemen? Good morning. Great. All right. Well, we're going to be continuing in our discussion of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And if you've been following uh, this series and haven't gotten the book, I would strongly encourage you to get the book. I think it's a must-read. And if you're interested in understanding the times, especially if you care to understand the times we live in, um, do you guys have that book in your hand? Maybe you can point it right there on on that camera. There you go. Highly recommend it, and uh, I think you will find it very helpful as you follow along. And our goal is to synthesize, kind of summarize uh, the chapters, his ideas, and um, and and make it make it maybe uh, interesting to our times, make it uh, relevant to our times. I know the book was written a few years ago, a couple years ago, I think. But we're still, s- we're still, still in relevant. the. It, I mean, yeah. it addresses how did we get to the trans. Yes, uh, crazed right. movement, that's and right. that's where we're still at. We're still we're still here. So it's, two years ago, two years ago, I was right. So it's it's still very very relevant. And if you want the uh, layperson's view uh, version, because I understand not all are well versed in philosophy, then you might want to pick up uh, the title also written by him: "Strange New World: How yeah. Thinkers and Activists." Redefine identity and spark the sexual revolution. Um, have you seen a copy of that, gentlemen? I've not gotten no. the copy yet. I'd be Only interested. To, yeah, I'd be interested to see and compare. Right. Yeah, but I have because, friends who are reading it currently. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's a distillation of this book. It's not so it, it takes it and simplifies it, so to speak. There you is, go. is what it's. And there is some addition to that as well, some new ideas. Yeah, I believe oh, he's, right. he's relevant at, to the churches. Yeah, which is which means that there will probably be a second edition of this book coming out at some <laughs> point in time when he adds to it. So, which would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I am reminded of this verse in Scripture, First Chronicles twelve thirty two. Uh, it's often quoted nowadays. Uh, it reads, "Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times." to know what Israel ought to do. And then um, a few verses down there, it says, men of war arrayed in battle order. Mm. I believe we are currently in a battle, gentlemen. Oh, I, I know I used to avoid saying culture war, but I it's, it's unavoidable now. I'm yeah. sorry. I think we are in a culture war. And I think it's important to know that we are, because if we think we aren't, then we let our guard down, right? right? Or we have no defenses. Uh, well, we're, we're just going to let the enemy uh, trample all over us without any fight. And before you know it, we are living in a different world, and that's not good. And and God has commanded us to be good stewards of, of his kingdom to begin with. We are caretakers. Um, I don't know if uh, maybe our listeners or we've thought about the whole context behind that verse— uh, the men of Issachar were part of David's mighty men. And if you know anything about David's mighty men, uh, it's like just in the movies, you know, they were responsible for defeating armies many times uh, their size. (laughs) And they fought valiantly and they were uh, with David and and they were very successful. And uh, so it's interesting that the men of Issachar are part of that uh, army. Yeah, they're the special forces, if you were. And uh, in yeah. any special forces, you'll have experts in various skills. Right. So you have the the paratroopers, the frogmen, right? the Navy SEALs, the Green Berets. The, all of those individuals are trained in different aspects of warfare in order to infiltrate the enemy or conquer a specific instances and what you're saying is the men of Issachar there they were the intelligence operatives if you will yeah. they were the guys who had their finger on the pulse of what the culture believed of what they were doing and they could then answer and counter any false ideas 
uh, or corrupting influences that would have weakened the nation. Yeah, yeah. And they were not part of it because they got some participation medals. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh don't get me started. Yeah, you're going to bring that up later. You have to bring that up later. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we get into our topic, um, any ministry updates? I know, Jacob, you said you have a a plug you want to mention? Yeah, um, but before I do that, uh, it's been a joy over the past two weeks to actually lead a series of um, teachings on apologetics and issues relevant to our culture, like personhood, human dignity, uh, role of government, Christian responsibility towards the governments that God has established. So uh, on Sunday, it's the last day of the series. I'm really excited about that and spend some time with um, with the audience. Uh, good response. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to a conference coming up in November, um, organized by the Branch of Hope uh, Church here in Torrance. Uh, it's Banson Conference, and uh, the re- registration is open. Um, they got an amazing lineup of speakers. Yeah. Uh, people like David Banson, who is the son of Greg Banson. Oh. Uh, we have Jeffrey Ventrella. Uh, we have Douglas Wilson, uh, Jeff Durbin, um, and um, a few other speakers. So nice if anyone wonder. is interested, Nice Wonger. And yes. you, you're, yeah, you. I, I, I'll be one yeah, of the speakers can, as well. And uh, Jason Gallagher. Jason, yeah. It's wow. like the apologetics.com <laughs> team, right? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing team. It's a great opportunity for anyone here in SoCal. Yeah. If you have an opportunity, I would say uh, go to the website um, bansonconference.com uh, and you can register there. And uh, don't miss this opportunity. It, it, it'll be very much uh, a practical approach to engaging with our culture. Uh, yeah, so. Very good, very good. How about you, Lenny? Well, yeah, I'm excited. I'm uh, off to Omaha, Nebraska uh, in just a couple of weeks. We'll be speaking at uh, Creation Days Festival for Standing Stone Bible Church in Gretna, which is a suburb of Omaha. So that's uh, three nights, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night. I guess they have a, a kind of a fair and things that kick off the whole event on Saturday uh, it should be a really good time. We're going to be talking about issues of science, creation, uh, evolution, and how we as Christians in the 21st century are able to understand, unpack that, and where the balance, the truth with uh, the scientific enterprise will be. Mm-hmm. So that's coming up just this next month. Uh, and then uh, the other thing that I've been doing uh, um, on the ministry side is we've been uh, doing a pretty good push on Instagram, having an Instagram campaign where we're putting these little video snippets mm-hmm. up and engaging with secularists, uh, seekers, and atheists even online. So that, that's been a lot of fun too. Mm-hmm. Good. That's good. Well, before we get into our topic tonight, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are supported entirely by your generous donations. So if you find our shows to be valuable and wish for it to continue, please support us by liking and sharing this on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and other social media outlets. You can also help us with our radio costs by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the Donate button. Any amount helps, and your partnership will help us remain on the air. Again, I want to continue to plug our certificate program fully online. Uh, I believe that it's valuable, and uh, it has a... uh, cultural apologetics theme to it. Um, and, and many of the speakers there are from, from our, our batch of um, staff members uh, at apologetics.com. So, all right, gentlemen, let's get into uh, our topic for this evening. We are on chapter three, and uh, the title, he made, he made it clever because it's the other Genevan. Because <laughs> when we talk about the Genevan, who are we talking about? Typically, uh, usually it's yeah. Calvin. Calvin, yeah. that's right, our favorite Genevan. But there is another Genevan who has made uh, waves in the uh, philosophy uh, world, uh, and his name is Jean Jacques Rousseau. Uh, so he's a big uh, name philosopher. Yeah. And if you want to. Although he hated philosophy. 
<laughs> and, and yeah, and I think he really wasn't properly trained as one. Right? No. no, he never went to actually any school. To <laughs> he was a polymath, um, innovator, musician, philosopher, political, you know, theorist. Yeah. So yeah, coming out of that time, I think it was just you know, hey, if you can uh, write long essays and say whatever, yeah. <laughs> if it sort of made sense, yeah. While he was all this, he was not known to be a good father or, or person who you can engage with um, socially. Um, mm. He even sent his, known to have sent his children to adoption centers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah he, ha he has a very yeah, sketchy yeah. kind of like yeah, uh, that's background. True. Well, even if, I mean, it's in his writings, right? I mean, visiting prostitutes and yeah, to him that was actually one of uh, a transformational thing for for him. We'll see if we get into that. But so yeah, so this topic is um, on Rousseau's thinking and how we got to the psychological man, as Reef would put it, kind of like the the last part of the various uh, descriptions of. Uh, human culture we're we're at the end we're and i think we're still in this we're still in the middle of this um psychological man stage oh, yeah. yeah so i'm just going to ask you guys what um what are some of the things that hit you here uh that gave you an impression of or insight uh with, with uh, matching that with what's going on in culture well, one of the things that you notice right away is the idea of individualism changes from personal responsibility to personal happiness, personal motivation based on what you feel. And that's, I think, one of the major shifts that Rousseau is responsible for. Prior to Rousseau, the individual, um, well, if you go way back, and we've talked about this in the, in the past, the, the Romans and the Greeks and the even non-Christian societies like Islam, the Japanese uh, Buddhist societies, they didn't see an individual as the primary component of society. See, they were, they were substructures underneath the society, but the society was primary. So you're either a Roman or you're a barbarian that kind of a, a dichotomy. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. You're either part of the in-group or you're not. Mm -hmm. But the group itself is the primary. Mm -hmm. Paul, and then Augustine, understanding Paul, really starts to say, well, there's an individual responsibility that one has, and, and our sins are individualized, and our forgiveness is individualized, and you can't just be a Christian or a non-Christian in the sense of you're part of the group. It's You have to have a personal one-on-one -on -one understanding of your sin, and you have to have a personal one-on-one -on -one reconciliation with your God. So, so that was a, a huge shift. A great book on this is called Inventing the Individual by Larry Seidentop, and it talks about how Christianity is actually the, the fundamental shift of this concept of the individual becoming central as opposed to society or the broader culture or the polis being yeah. central. The Reformation also affirmed that. Yeah. The Reformation some, yeah. develops that and affirms that yeah. more. But out of the Reformation, what Rousseau does is he takes it sideways. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to like Augustine's understanding. He likes the idea that Augustine says we're all individuals, but he doesn't like the understanding that Augustine centers the individual on the fact that the individual is an individual sinner. <laughs> and so Rousseau says, it's not that I'm a sinner, it's that I have individual feelings. And his whole project is to say, the feelings are what are the honest piece about me. It's my feelings that count, and then it's the what happens? Self, right, that's right. The natural that, so, self. so his yeah. state of nature yeah. is is the phrase that you hear in political philosophy all the time. That yeah. that if there's this idyllic, and this doesn't exist in the real world, this is a this is a hypothetical construct. Right. That that he made up actually. Yeah. Right? That he actually <laughs> crafted. That if you could right. place a person in in an environment where they can just seek to meet their needs of food, of shelter, of basic safety, basic wants, then they would never be evil. They would have their basic needs met, and they would be happy, and they would be uh, free to express themselves individually. It's very much a modern humanist understanding as well. Matter of fact, Gene Roddenberry pictures the Star Trek 
universe in this way. We don't work for money. We work just for the satisfaction of exploration yeah. because we've got these replicators and these things. Our technology has brought us to the point of where we don't need those kinds of things anymore. Mm. Now, of course, that's nonsense because if you've ever watched any of the Star Trek movies, you know there's always conflict and there's always people doing things that are selfish for themselves. So, and they have to have, you know, a military order and things like that. So it, it yeah. even Roddenberry contradicts himself. And this is the problem with Rousseau as well. But Rousseau feels that the central person is, in number one, he assumes that people are intrinsically good. Right. Mm. And that they're corrupted by the external pressures of the world put around them. That they're just a, you know, all these different layers that people bestow upon you. You have to be a good um, part of society, so therefore you cannot do this. Maybe uh, you can't, uh, you know, sleep around because our morals tell you not to do that. Therefore, that causes frustration for you, and that frustration, then you act out. Or it says you have to get ahead in the world. You have to, So therefore, you start to lie and cheat and steal at work because the push is for you to succeed in life. So Rousseau says it's, it's all these external stimuli that are actually corrupting us, but inherently we're good. And Really, that's what we see today. <laughs> we see that in spades, that, that people are taking this concept and running with it. Right, right. Yeah, I think uh, Truman puts it this way. The difference between Augustine and Rousseau is one of, for Augustine, um, the inward-looking aspect was primarily as a prelude to outward-looking, you know, in terms of like uh, you're finding meaning not from within, from outside, mm -hmm. whereas that's not the case with Rousseau. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's... Reading this makes sense in terms of where we are as a culture. If we see the whole uh, idea of systemic racism and the mm -hmm. emphasis on that, that it's yeah. not the individual responsibility, but because you belong in a system, it's the system that corrupts you. Uh, and it's so much re reflective of the fact that how does this idea that Rousseau is uh, you know, uh, discussing in his writings and in his work is kind of like like trickling down through the culture and the way we see yeah. things working out today well like it's i amazing. mentioned uh on our trip here that if i can summarize rousseau in a simple way it seems like all of the negative uh, aspects of humanity could always be blamed not not your you it's always out there the blame yeah. is always out there the corrupting nature of society so in one sense there is a distinction that can be seen in today's realities is that there's this idea of progressivism right looking forward to becoming better right. whereas in terms of Rousseau it's looking back to getting back to our primal state of having those basic needs being met so we are in one sense living in a utopian society where everything is shared equally yeah. And there is right. no competition. There is no um, if, aggression if we towards your neighbor. we were only free to be yes. ourselves in, in however we feel yeah. without any competition, without any external pressures, then then we would never need to be evil because yeah. uh, we wouldn't even think about going there because all of our desires would be met. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Tony Campalo yeah. um, used to, in his talks, talk about uh, a gentleman that he'd counseled. And the guy said, you know, that's, that's the problem. Society keeps laying all of these burdens on me and all of these layers on me. And I just want to peel them back and find out who I really am. I want to get back down to the real me. And Capallo asks him, well, what if you're an onion? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, once you peel back all the layers, what happens if there's nothing left. You know? <laughs> Have you ever considered that option? And this is where I think Rousseau goes wrong. How does he know that we're basically good? Where does he get that information from? Where is he making that assumption? Because if you start with the wrong assumption, right. you can have a lot of right um, proposals, right? You can have a lot of right propositions, but if one of them is wrong, that's a necessary component to your argument— then your argument's going to fail. Right, right. And this is not to disregard that there is some societal responsibilities oh, as absolutely. well. And we do actually give in to certain pressures that we are put under. At the same time, we should be asking, what is society, basically? Right. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a it's a collective of, of the individuals. Right. And right. therefore, yeah. the responsibilities at the end does come to the individuals. Right. So this is, so biblically, let's take a biblical position on this. 
Let's take the state of nature biblically. When do we see the state of nature biblically? Adam and Eve, hmm. Garden of Eden prior to the fall. They encounter an external pressure, right? Satan comes in, tempts her with the apple. Oh, you shall not surely die. So there's the external pressure. But the Bible also says that she saw that the fruit looked good, that it was desirable to make one wise. And so there's a personal aspect of it, a personal weakness that mm -hmm. she alone is responsible for, and then Adam also following right. the instruction of his wife. So both are true. Yeah. And when but wait, we, I was going to say, though, where's the society in that uh, well, story? The devil the, is the society. <laughs> or the external side. That's the, yeah. external, sure. that's the external force. But when you capitulate to the external force, ultimately the blame falls on you. Mm -hmm. So you can't say... Uh, these poor guys who are shooting at one another in the inner cities of Chicago and their stray bullets happen to catch a second grader, you can't say, well, they didn't know any better because that's how they were raised and that's how the inner city is. And you can't, you know, yeah. uh, you can't judge them because their lived experience is not your lived experience. No, we're human beings. And you can, even if no one told you, hey, don't shoot randomly into a house. We all have enough of a brain to say, yeah, that may actually go bad for me. If yeah. you stop and think, but they don't want to stop and think, they just want to react on their feelings. Right. But our society, are, there, there are many of the, the, the critical race folks who would say, it's not their fault that they're killing each other. <laughs> right. It's, uh, defi it's definitely not uh, their and fault. Can, and yeah, that's how society's portrayed right now. Right? And I think, Lenny, you pointed out a while ago how even when God approaches Adam, he then, you know, puts responsibility on that's Eve. That's right. Yeah, Adam blames, blames, blames yeah. her. Or yeah. It's her. It wasn't me. Yeah. And God said, yeah, I'm not even going to take that. <laughs> so there's a proto-Rousseau, right? That's right. Rousseau. Proto-Rousseau right there. So, it's, it's, so what Rousseau is doing, I, th I think he knows deep down, I think he has some guilt. I mean, he's living in a 16th century culture, uh, a 17th century culture. 18th century it, culture. Was he seven, early yeah, 17, 18th, 18th century. century. So it's like 1700. 1711. Yeah, 1700, sorry. Yeah. And, um, and he, he knows that the things, going to visit prostitutes, abandoning your children. I mean, he knows. Yeah, you know, know that those things mm -hmm. are wrong. Yeah, yeah. Funny, he doesn't show pity on his kids. We'll we'll get to that. Right, right. We'll get to but, that. But um, he, he did he, he did on the prostitute to some degree. To some degree, yeah. But, but then he's trying to justify it. Yeah, that's, that's what exactly I'm what he's doing. He's yeah. trying to get out of it by blaming out there. Yeah, and that story with Virat. And by the way, uh, this is apparently uh, part of his. Rousseau's formation, the the stealing of the asparagus. Yes, uh, apparently uh, a man persuaded him to steal for him so he could sell it, so he could have money. And Rousseau's justification for that is uh, he didn't steal it for greed, because because sometimes we think that you know yeah, he, he stole the greed. asparagus to give it to the other guy. So to the other he, guy, he didn't benefit so, so, himself. So he's per saying se. that there's really nothing wrong with it. What makes it wrong is now uh, maybe the guilt placed by society or the peer pressure. Really, well, he said he wouldn't steal at all if the guy hadn't come up to him, and it would have the thought wouldn't have even crossed his right. mind yeah. had the guy not pressured. "Quote unquote," pressured him. So into that's it. that's blame number one uh, to Mister Verat right there, and then blame number two. He had this other experience with a prostitute, and uh, this one I told you guys I need to read the the exact source because according to Truman, uh, he was Rousseau was struck by Zulietta's beauty, and uh, he was speechless, and yet at some point. Uh, notice some defect on her, and it's interesting because the maybe uh, something that was so perfect gets marred all of a sudden. In at least Rousseau's mind, he goes to the other extreme, and now this um, prostitute is now a monster. Yeah. And then what does he do? He blames it on the corrupting nature of society. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, again, blame number two, right? And then the other. Um, experience that he had was this essay that he wrote, um, Discourse on Sciences and the Arts. And uh, it seems like he was just, uh, he just saw the uh, announcement on the paper and started just writing. I, this is something that he did, which 
formalized and crystallized yeah, it was a, it ideas. Was a, it was a contest. And, it was a contest, yeah. And the science uh, academy folks thought that people would be writing about how science and the arts have made life Has better. Improved. Right, right. Yeah. And For, he did the opposite, <laughs> yeah. which is very Rousseau, right? And, yeah. and so the, he Contrarian. got n- notoriety yeah. because of that. What, what do you guys think of that? Do, do, do you guys think that really that's part of uh, – his foundation for thinking that everything is just to blame, not not him, but just everybody else. Uh, uh, the oh, question yeah. comes down to, like, he's also appealing to a standard, and the standard is his own self. Mm. Um, now, uh, as a human being, how is that being justified is the question, right? Uh, he's not appealing to a transcendent law or anything. And I think there's a, th- there is a temptation here which we also find in our generation as well, is that we have issues uh, submitting to God's law. That's where the issue is. So what we do is actually we break his law so that we, we show ourselves above the law. And who remains above the law? It's always God who remains above the law. So it's, it's an attempt to replace God and enthrone oneself. And I think in Rousseau's case, that's exactly what's happening. He's putting himself in the place of making himself the standard. Yeah, because if it's not God, really, it becomes we uh, that become God. And then anything goes. And then anything goes. Well, I hear the music, gentlemen, which means it's our signal to go to a break. Uh, We have been discussing Chapter 3 of Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We'll be right back after a few messages. Welcome back to the uh, second half hour of the Apologetics.com radio show. Good evening. I am Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. And we have been talking about Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We're on Chapter 3. The title of that chapter is The Other Genevan, and that other Genevan is Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, So we've been, uh, the last half hour, we just talked a lot about his his ideas and uh, what led him to develop those ideas. And basically, uh, a good summary of that is he ends up just blaming society for all of uh, society's ills, in- including, um, I guess, uh, our, uh, our personal corruption of ourselves. So uh, w- one of the things that's big on, on his thinking is the idea of pity, uh, in fact, it is, according to Truman, uh, the basis for his ethical uh, framework. What do you think that is, uh, Lenny? What, what, what's that all about? Well, when Rousseau talks about pity, it's not, oh, poor baby. <laughs> it's a, that's the modern connotation, mm-hmm. but, it's, it, but it's a broader understanding of, of seeing another and kind of reflecting of, as— I may be in that situation. What? How would I feel if I were in that situation? So again, Rousseau is all about uh, self-preservation, meeting my needs, uh, meeting my desires. And if my situation were that I were hurt yeah. or that I were in a area where I needed help from someone else, then pity kicks in. And what Rousseau says is he sees this as natural and fundamental to the human condition that it's you know you don't you don't think about it so yeah. something like mathematics isn't necessarily fundamental to the human condition to say oh if i need to get i i know i want to get here in 20 minutes i know that it's 20 miles away i could do a quick calculation it means i got to drive a mile a minute got to drive 60 miles an hour yeah. to get there so so that's that's a a conscious decision or pity is unconscious you see someone you immediately want to react so therefore rousseau says well pity is one of these things that's inherent in our souls therefore this is one of the ways that we are basically good and if we were not um, corrupted by society then our pity would drive us to continue to be basically good that's that's his argument I want to add to that, too, um, and you can continue, but it's interesting that pity, again, part of the whole self-preservation, part of uh, the loves that he talks about, uh, the self-preservation, it's uncomfortable to have that 
pity, that feeling. Yeah. So then he must or we must act to resolve that pity. That's true. So in other words, he also actually believes in this, I think it's a confusion uh, construction of the golden rule, don't do unto others which you wouldn't want, want done to you. To right. So uh, he says the basis of that is kind of a pity that's right, dri- that's right. driver. So that's where he comes into this. So it's idea. not very altruistic. It's actually taking care of the situation because it's uncomfortable to me. Yeah. Uncomfortable to uh, us. And um, is it where he actually d- distinguishes between sympathy and empathy? Where basically the idea that you enter into someone else's shoe to experience right. what they are going through by recognizing what they're going through, not just standing outside and sympathizing with them and right. not getting involved. Yeah, in some, in, a, in some aspects, that's true. And again, Rousseau is saying he's using this as an example because, again, we're, we challenge the idea that people are fundamentally good. Anybody who has a two-year-old <laughs> know, or has ever had a two-year-old knows that you don't have to teach them to be selfish. You have to teach them to be kind you yeah. have to teach so that it, it's a suspect assumption on its face mm-hmm. but one of the things he's saying is well pity is is inherent it's it it's happens immediately without us thinking about it that may be true but then again we're swimming in the milieu of the christian worldview right and so part of what we catch is this idea that number one other people are equal Mm-hmm. And, and and that we therefore have a duty to our fellow man, and in Christianity way we say more than ourselves, right? Don't walk one mile, walk two. These are all teachings that Jesus had, and, and that was different than most other cultures. But I can show you even in other instances where immediate reactions aren't necessarily inherent or inert into the individual they're uh, culturally based. And modesty would be one of those. So there are many different cultures that have many different views on modesty. Now, the idea of modesty has some play, but there are certain um, aboriginal tribes and African nations where it's nothing more than a fig leaf, and they're feeling un. Their feelings of discomfort don't exist at all. Whereas if you go to certain Islamic countries, if their hair is uncovered, they immediately react. They don't think about it. It, it feels in, inherent to them to cover themselves because their hair is uncovered and a man's coming in the room or something mm-hmm. to that effect. So though, here's an example of where culture actually does elicit a response that's immediate, automatic, and because you've grown up in it your whole life, it's the only thing that you've known, and you feel it's as natural as anything else. Mm -hmm. So I don't buy the fact that Rousseau's pity is something intrinsic in us, other than the fact that God has written upon our heart his law. That can still be twisted. That can still be corrupted. It's there, but again, we don't know the final outcome of what we feel is that a distorted view or is that the right view because we need an external referent against which to compare it to tell whether it's distorted or yeah. not. And I think the the fact that we all have the image of God on us, though yeah. it's may, maybe marred by sin, but there is this tendency of recognizing that image on the other and a response to that. I think that's ingrained within us. Yeah. With with the whole idea of pity, as Rousseau would uh, understand it, right? Do you guys think that the idea today of kindness or niceness might be a little tinged by this thinking by Rousseau? Because it's it's more like I'm nice because I want you to be nice to me. Well, that, I, it, right? it's you cannot criticize. That's right. You cannot. You can, you, you cannot. You it, the other person has his feelings, and they're just as valid as your feelings. And therefore, your any criticisms you have is is being critical against the very core being of who that individual is. Uh, that's why we see that in the, even in the Scripture, that, that distinction is maintained, that when we see Christ, He sympathizes with us, not empathizes with us in our sin, in that He becomes yeah. a sinner by doing sin. No, He just empathizes. Uh, sympathizes with us that he takes on sin on himself mm. to redeem us. And right. that has to be maintained in our culture. We don't do that unless and until I agree with you with whatever you know uh, preferences you may have. 
uh, that I have to really acknowledge it and celebrate that with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to empathize with you. Right. I can't simply step back and say that, no, that's not the right thing to do. Uh, though I sympathize with you because I'm, I'm also one of the sinners. Right, right, right. <laughs> Chief among yeah, them. Yeah, now, you know? nowadays yeah. the demand is that you enter into that other person's view of reality, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, and right. you can't say yeah. right. one way or the other. And that's, and that's, and that's a the difference. Radical between, shift. Yeah, that's right. The shift there is in Christianity... Uh, there is that altruism. You do it selflessly, but in this Rizzoan idea, there's a quid pro quo type uh, arrangement. You know, you well, and even you know, you take the story of the adulterous woman. You know, Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he also says, "Go and sin no, no more. more." So there's there's still a standard mm-hmm. in which he's trying to uphold. Today, it's it, you know, they're asking us to tell the anorexics that they're fat. Yes, I, I agree with you. You need to lose five more pounds. Mm-hmm. That you know, because the transgender kid, thirteen, fourteen. Yes, let's get your breasts removed. You know, let's yeah. let's put you on puberty blockers. Let's. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. What what else is uh, danger? So we acknowledge that there are some factors that's in society that do affect us and and transform us and form us. But uh, what are other dangerous things that, that uh, Rousseau kind of imports into our culture today? I think Truman touches on that, and he um, t- uh, acknowledges one of the symptoms in our culture also, the need to actually recognize and um, acknowledge all voices, including young people who mm-hmm. have not lived their life enough to experience uh, a lot many things in their life to come to a conclusion and to a decision in their life. Whereas we actually, without questioning, um, uh, say yes to their demands, right? right? Because they are closer to the primal state that we think they are not uh, violated enough by the society. Yeah, they haven't had enough years. They're not corrupted enough. So, So instead of, and this, this can happen within the church as well, where yes. we, what we are doing is actually we are losing authority of the elders completely, and we're listening to the sheep in leading uh, the church. Well, and, yeah. and even listening to secular society, right? Yeah. When did, when did uh, why is the modern rock concert the model for the modern worship service? Hmm. Why, why did we pick up on that why when did it stop being congregational and start being performative mm-hmm. fog machines lighting systems Lasers. and if Lasers, you see a lot yeah. of christian institutions educational institutions this has been the symptom over the past decades where it, the decisions were not coming from the administration or the or from the president's office mm-hmm. but the presidents and uh, le- people in leadership are motivated to make changes and bring them about yeah. because of the demands of the, the students, students. Yeah, that's right there's yeah. no there's no not even the parents not even the students. Yeah, there's yeah. no bravery yeah. in yeah. modern uh, academia yeah. anymore. And, and today in the school, if, if if a child comes and says that I've, uh, if a boy comes and says I feel like a girl, the teachers don't have to actually consult with the parents or anyone else, but they actually uh, enforce that even more, right. uh, acknowledge that even more, and allow for those changes to take place right. at that you know young. Yeah, age. they actually even yeah. rush them through it. There's more yeah. and more stories coming in where where they're um, literally. Not even even when the kid is starting to say, "Well, I'm I'm not quite sure anymore." Oh no no, let's keep going. I yeah, mean, they're yeah. they're actually feeding the the dysphoria. It's bad. And the other example is that Harry, you mentioned about, especially we see this uh, the extreme side of that in the European nation, where we um, uh, we don't see criminal acts as being criminal anymore. As we used to, it, it's not punitive. Uh, it's not, you know, because right. uh, it's not their fault. Not their yeah. fault. Uh, so, yeah. so we, we provide fault, them right. with luxurious accommodations yeah. to live in, yeah. you know, because they have taxpayers to money themselves. Yeah. That's right. So there um, is no punishment for the crime that they have done. We need to actually help them ref- get reformed through programs and give them benefits and make their life as comfortable as possible because they are corrupted by the society, right. not by their own will. Right. Right. Uh, you mentioned. Um, Kind of like the move toward having the young people be uh, the authority because perhaps they have wisdom since they come from a less uh, depraved state, um, according to Rousseau. So I still remember a time when you had Britney Spears, Justin Bieber, all you know in their teens, being the 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 standard of music. Uh, I remember Greta Thunberg. Th- Thunberg, yeah. 
my goodness, what was she like uh, a time person of the year or something? Yeah, Maybe. at 16, at because 16. she she stood up yeah. in front of people who've been studying climate for 50 years and uh, all these academics and made demands that were very broad, that were very vague, yeah. uh, thinking that somehow you can wave a magic wand and change things. And she just emoted. Basically, she just emoted. Right. And everybody said... Oh, that's great. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's uh, another interesting thing about Rousseau. We've been talking about him. He predates a, a lot of the philosophers uh, who we think are, are really um, saying what he's saying, like Freud and uh, Hegel. Uh, but yet, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Truman goes all the way back to Rousseau. And, and we will be talking about how Marx borrows from yeah. Rousseau at some point. It, uh, when it comes to education and, let's say, parenting, how would uh, Rousseauan uh, philosophy affect the field of education, let's say? Well, I think you're seeing some of it in the idea of um, not so much education, although it's being reflected there as well, but even in corporate America where Target is trying to get rid of girls' aisles and boys' aisles and have these genderless, right? Let the kids explore as to what they what they want to do. Of course, part of the problem with this is that you find out that kids actually do fall into natural camps of of male and female, no matter what you try to do. Uh, toy companies would have loved to have done this for the last 50 years because you double your audience, right? If you make a Barbie that both boys and girls can buy, that's, that's, that's a 100% increase over your previous sales mm-hmm. figures. Uh, but it's not been effective. Just like you take away the toy guns out of the stores and you find kids are taking pop tarts and you know biting them into the shape of a gun and then they're still getting expelled from school for that kind of thing <laughs> right so, so it's staggering so so the idea that you can be your real self but maybe not so much you know <laughs> if it if it if it bucks the the current uh, right, right. standards of the day but we see it in education in, in what they call social emotional learning the mm. SEL is a big big push right now, which is uh, really based on a lot of critical theory, but social and emotional learning is having children find their own way Mm. in their own time to explore their own path so that they can come and learn what's best for them. Here's one. California is, there's um, legislation in the state of California, it's not been signed yet, but it probably will be that it will be illegal to start high school before 8.30 a.m. Because what they found is that high school and junior high kids uh, who are sleep-deprived do worse in school. Now, why are they sleep-deprived? Because they have to get up at 7.30 in the morning, or they have to get up and get to school at 7.30 in the morning. That's not actually why they're sleep-deprived. They're sleep-deprived because they're playing video games all night. And chatting with their friends. And chatting with their friends. So instead of saying, kids, go to bed at 10, I'm going to take your phone away from you, we're going to turn off the internet, which is what past cultures would have done, we're literally changing the law in the state to force schools to start later for the sake of the children. Right, right. And and that's happening right now. And the other thing is that... um, by putting all our kids uh, at that very natural state of uh, just achieving that basic need for life, we are suppressing their creativity. That's we are suppressing right. their, uh, the, the, the character that needs to be formed even through competition, even through engagement with yeah. each other and socializing with each other by putting them all at the same level right. and recognizing their infant nature as being primal and necessary and good. I think we are not developing virtue, which used to be the task of education. Right, right. Even the, the responsibility that parents have is one of uh, inculcating in them that virtuous, uh, virtuousness, right? Yeah. Being um, citizens of good character that would contribute yeah. to the flourishing of the society. Yeah. And that has to happen in a collective existence, not just by isolating them to the point that we only recognize what they want to be for themselves. Well, it's interesting. Any yeah. any skill of value is a skill that's been honed within a restricted scenario. So if you're a writer, and there are, there are a lot of people who can simply write, 
if you're an artist, there's a lot of people who can graffiti. Hmm. But if you're going to make it, you know, you have to be able to, hey, I have 500 words and you have to make that entire argument within those 500 words. You have eight column inches because that's all the space you have for the newspaper today. We need to make this graphic design so it does X, X, and X. There's always parameters, conditions, mm. right? If you're going to learn to play the piano, you can make some interesting noises, but you'll never be able to pull off, you know, Rachmaninoff if you haven't done your scales, yeah. if you haven't practiced within a set series of parameters. It's true with sports. It's true with everything. And to say that we just let the kids go and be who they are, you're right. We're actually robbing them of a... a a certain amount of freedom because they will never have the freedom to be excellent hmm. because they don't know the parameters against which to practice and better themselves. Yeah. I mean, I see this all the time. I, I'm around families with little kids and I see the difference between parents who have discipline versus parents who don't have discipline. And, and when I say uh, on the second category, they don't have discipline, it's not even... Uh, a malicious uh, kind of a non-discipline. It's just almost the niceness, the yeah. kindness. Look, I just don't want to break their spirit. Right. And what I observe in those kids are just chaos. I mean, the home life is chaos. Uh, everything they do is chaotic. And uh, and I, I'm sad for those parents and for those families. There's a reason why we don't call um, forests or jungles as uh, gardens. Right, gardens are maintained. Mm -hmm. You have to take care of it. Uh, there's a difference why we call it wild. The jungles are wild, whereas gardens are. You know, uh, it has uh, a structure to it. It has parameters, as you said, yeah, yeah. Uh, and has a purpose behind it. And I think we need to learn even from nature itself as to how um, it works out in terms of uh, the whole idea of goodness, truth, and beauty. How yeah. that is promoted yeah. even in the lives in the gardens of our children. You know, yeah. just, no, that's good. Now to Rousseau's credit, um, and Truman points it out that he is not Rousseau is not a subjectivist. He's no. So we have to be careful to not lay that on him. Yeah. And he does believe in a higher power because that higher power has given us consciences. Apparently, I think the main issue that we see here uh, sometimes it's easy to overlook, but a big issue is the fact that uh, we are inherently evil. That's the thing. We're not inherently good, as Rousseau would claim. So when you start with a false premise, like you're saying, Lenny, then it leads to all sorts of challenges and issues. <laughs> so, you know, if if we're inherently yeah, a, a, a bad... A pilot yeah. flying to Hawaii, if, he's, if his coordinates start off two degrees different. You don't notice it at first. And he can fly it textbook uh, through the entire process of takeoff to landing. But if he starts off with two degrees off... He's not going to be he's not, anywhere he's, near. It's going to be nothing but ocean by <laughs> the time you're done. And yeah. that's really a dangerous place to be. Yeah, he won't have fuel to correct his course. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think that's an important thing between... Uh, and and uh, Truman, I like what he he does. He compares the two confessions because yeah. one one is uh, by Rousseau. He very originally <laughs> titled it Confessions, his main work, and, and Augustine's Confessions. Right. But the main difference is Rousseau thinks that we start with uh, a good human nature versus um, uh, Augustine, who gets it from Paul. Um, that we are born sinners. Yeah, you are. You are no more human than when you are expressing yourself. And what in Truman shows that this is, you know, we we talk about the LGBTQ plus movement. Mm -hmm. um, that's where that's where this whole idea really finds its germination. But interestingly, so Rousseau's story of the asparagus, of course, is the parallel of, of uh, the very famous story of Aquinas and the pears. When he was a young lad, he and his friends decided, saw some pears in somebody's garden, decided to steal them. Mm -hmm. Not because they were hungry, not even because they needed pears. I mean, he had more pears that were actually of better variety mm -hmm. in his own home. But the thrill of stealing yeah. was what compelled him. And he realized, reflecting back on it, he goes, 
that's what evil is. It was something inside of me that just got excited by doing what was what was dangerous, what was bad, what was forbidden. Uh, well, while there's that inner voice and inner, you know, just um, uh, kind of like um, morality, that mm. standard by which we actually judge our own conscience. At the same time, I think with regards to what Rousseau is saying, we need to be careful as well that we are not understanding the voice of our psychological self as the voice of God. Yes, that's, and, that's a big and mistake. And that's a big mistake happening within the church as well, mm-hmm. that we, are, <laughs> we give greater regard for our own uh, yeah. voice or even interpret our, that as God's voice. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, let's, let's go with that. I know, uh, Lenny, you pointed that out. Uh, so, yeah, so we have consciences. But, again, if it's not grounded in God, right. we're in yeah. big trouble. Right. Because well, then it's, you see, I yeah. mean, okay, so it, the whole concept of Christian nationalism, our patriotism kind of feels like it's what it's supposed to do. And there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. Matter of fact, we're to pray for our kings, right? Romans 13 talks about supporting the state and that God gives them the sword for a purpose. All of that's fine. But when it supersedes worship of God, Hmm. as any man-made institution at some point will, because we're corrupt, when that happens, we have to say... uh, no, we're doing it wrong. Yeah. If your church service is inviting politicians to discuss political issues on Sunday mornings and not the gospel, that may be a red flag. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. In in politics, how do you guys see uh, Rousseau affecting uh, our current political landscape right now? So lots of lots of talk about socialism right now. It's not uncommon. Do you think that there is? Um, a little bit of Rousseau in socialism and capitalism. Well, there's and, definitely the assumption that uh, nobody's challenging the idea that that feelings aren't the basis, or or that one's individual uh, makeup isn't based on one's feelings. I don't. I don't. In politics, that's like that's like the third rail. <laughs> so any politician that runs tries to capitulate to wherever you're already at. They don't necessarily say, "No, this is where you need to be." Mm-hmm. So I see that as the danger that can lead into those kinds of ideas. In all this, I think uh, we need to recognize that we have to bring back the reverence for the law of God. Yeah. I think that's the key that is missing in all this. As Christians, uh, the danger is not just with people who, are, who don't believe in God or who do, who do not recognize Scripture as the Word of God. The danger is also with Christians who may live a life like a secularist, who may live a life uh, um, just for the sake of being known a Christian, but not living the life of a Christian. What we need in our culture today is the standard of the Word of God, and we have to bring back our reverence to the revelation of God and also reason as a truth, a source of truth, bringing both together to inform the life that we wish to live and right. build a society that is flourishing. Right. Basically, you're talking about those things should be grounding our beliefs mm. and our behavior. Yes. And not just a purely uh, societal, anthropological yeah. Yeah. way of thinking. Yep, that's true. So uh, you've been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. So special thanks to my panel, Jacob and Lenny, and to our behind-the-scenes sound engineer uh, back there makes everything work for us. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Until next time, good night.